Now, Robert, take your time. You don't have to rush. Huh? All right. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah. Um, I should explain that my background is history, so I'm not an economist and I'm not an engineer, but I'm working in a cross-disciplinary research environment with engineers, with uh, scientists, environmental scientists, um, uh, architects and designers, and our, our, our goals in the center are really three things. One is the circular economy and its implementation, about material flows and, and costs, costings, uh, the other, the other is pollution reduction, waste reduction, and um, the final one is sustainable urban development. So those three areas we we sort of cycle through, and we try and attract university and um, uh, government money and private money into various projects in those areas. So um, this little presentation is really about uh, waste, particularly and consumption, and. Um, what I want to do is to try and emphasize that the old idea that it's just a matter of population growth and income growth is not enough when you look at material flows. It's not enough. Um, you're looking at a sort of an accelerative uh, escalatory uh, situation where every year we're producing more goods faster and cheaper. And as a result, the the uh, income that you have um, every year increases in its capacity to buy things and to use things. And the more things we have, the more pressure we're on is to actually get rid of what we have because consumption requires waste. If you have lots of stuff and you're buying more and more things, there's pressure on you to get the latest and the best to get rid of what you have. And so the waste manager's job uh, is an impossible one. Now, when you look at um, uh, you know, the ISWA uh, you know, and their website, the International Solid Waste Association, they estimate that urban wastes, it's very hard to actually talk about numbers when you talk about wastes, but they're saying between seven and 10 billion uh, tons are being produced every year around the world. And this is going to double, and uh, you know this is something to think about. A good example of this is, um, uh, you know, when you look at say airline travel. I've just got off a plane yesterday. Um, Three billion plane tickets are sold every year, around, around that figure. Um, uh, the food waste connected with that is around 5.2 million tons every year, according to the IATA. I think it is. Both figures are going to double, so you know this is a this is a kind of an impossible, wicked problem that we're looking at, and hence the title of my book, somebody else's problem, which I'll talk a little bit about. So, my concern is that um, the idea of decoupling and dematerialization won't work unless we change the system, because um, you know if if you actually if you're a historian, you look at the process of industry and the development of industry over the last uh, 300 years, you're looking at a whole series of really good examples of dematerialization. But why haven't we, we have dematerialized in specific places, but as Stanley Jevons understood, um, you know, you're essentially, uh, the, the more efficient you make a system, the more uh, you um, 
uh, encourage consumption because when a system becomes very efficient, prices generally go down and uh, you, you end up generating more consumption. So um, that little hole in the wall that I showed you in the last slide was from a, my student who's living on a dump in Jakarta. And he, he, um, uh, he takes a lot of interesting photos, but it's what happens when the half of the world that doesn't have waste management, what they have to deal with. You know, um, so people will post waste into corners to try and make it go away. And he puts it, you know, uh, he's showing how it all ends up in the river. So um, I mentioned the Javon's paradox. Efficient systems tend to generate more consumption. Fast business models exploit this. They develop uh, a, a technique for uh, working out how to benefit from these, these uh, systems. Uh, some of the biggest companies you know, in Southeast Asia are ones that sell fast-moving single-use products, fast-moving products. Um, and promotional systems encourage us to uh, keep, keep up, to keep upgrading. So lower prices, uh, upgrading, marketing, credit, um, uh, you know, buying more, more often, more quickly, and the reduced lifespans in goods, um, uh, all this tries to encourage waste making so that there will be more space for the new. So the waste manager's dilemma is a very real one. And with new technology, what's happened is that all the former barriers to buying things very, very quickly are, are being removed. Easy credit, um, you get things that are free. You, you don't have to uh, uh, stop and think. You just type in, this is what I want, and it comes. You know? So, um, uh, so in my book, I talk about the generators of this, and uh, luxury is a very important one because that goes back three or four hundred years, particularly in this. And you can say it's very intimately tied with uh, the process of industrialization, because luxury provides the ne plus ultra. It's the 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 ultimate standard, you know, uh, of consumption in any field um, that is connected to the body. Uh, you don't get luxury water pumps, but it has to be the body. Uh, the clothing, the house, the what you can touch and feel, um, but and this motivates people to make things um, that are luxurious but cheaper. And then you have adaptive kind of demo democratization of luxuries. And the business of design is largely concerned with this um, uh, democratization, um, more production. Uh, um, and it, it creates also environmental transformation. When you look at the history of any popular commodity, you can see its capacity to transform the environment, you know, from coffee, tea, etc. You know, going back into the 18th century, ceramic cups. You know, they, they all have this capacity to transform the environment as uh, production, in a sense, um, you know, chases the the snake's head, which is consumption. Yeah. So, uh, luxury, adaptive democratization, um, the ideal of the good life, the better life. Um, this is very, very important in consumption because we all want uh, uh, what, is, what is the best we can afford. And this drives um, uh, consumerism where, you know, a state of mind, a way of life where we look for identity, meaning, um, and social standing through consumption. And this is continuously reinforced in the media.
Um, and social competition, um, when you move from a traditional society where, you know, if you read the Bible, you know, I'm Benjamin, the son of Benjamin, etc., you know, the one's role was fixed by um, one's place in the world. And I, I grew up in India where this was still happening in the 50s, you know. Um, people would never imagine that they could be anything other than what their parents were, you know, and of course this has all changed. So um, competition and comparison is really stimulated by consumption, and uh, by growing consumption and uh, social comparison. And so everyone wants to, in a way, not only keep up, but to be, um, to consume upwards, to, you know, looking around what is new, what is better, that that drives the, the engine, the, the juggernaut, if you like. And this also excites extrinsic values because you're looking at what others have and they, and then you start to see yourself mirrored in that and you start to see yourself in a sense as um, uh, how others see you. And this generates this sense of missing out, a fear of missing out. So. Um, in my book, I talk a lot about sunk cost effects because when you have these social um, technological systems like cars, you know, largely um, you know, from the 30s, but particularly from the 50s, when you have very extensive uh, environmental transformations driven by the idea that cars were the new way of transport, um, you develop these huge sunk cost effects. They're very hard to change. Um, I started my life as a social kind of sustainability person confronting traffic engineers around pedestrian safety. So I spent 10 years as an activist having a really bad time with traffic engineers. And um, uh, some of them are very nice people. But what I found was that they could tell me the price of the cars, the road system, the value, the economic value of their road system. They couldn't tell me the value of pedestrians. It was a, a mystery to them. It was like a black box. And so what tends to happen is when you have these very extensive uh, systems like the internet, you know, or the, you, know, you develop um, uh, commitments. And these commitments are partly based on self-interest, but they become uh, um, embedded through knowledge and through other, other science as well. Um, so uh, it becomes a point of resistance. So everyone, in a sense, is saying, well, um, you know, the, there's, there's a Prius you can get, which is low carbon, etc. And then, of course, there's others that say, well, it's not. Then you can go to the electric car, that's low carbon. No, it's not. I actually don't believe there's a green product. I'm very, I actually think, because products are benchmarked against other products, um, you really have to go back to the village to find a green product. You know, so it's it's not it's it's you know in industrial terms you're looking at a series of benchmarks, and uh, one of my problems I suppose with the circular economy is it tends to be based on pretty pictures drawn by people from engineering, and they don't notice that between each phase there's a market, and the market determines everything. You know, so even though they talk about circular economy, they often don't understand the economics of what they're talking about. So when I say there's no green product, what I mean is that it's relative. There's, there's greener products. There certainly are, and there's green, but it's, a, it's a, a, moving, a moving feast, if you like, a moving 
thing and it's dynamic and we have to actually sort of start thinking about this in, in bringing the economics together with the material flows and and this brings me to the, the next sort of bit which is acceleration because when you look at um, uh, the new technology you've got uh, one of the reasons why the take-up is so strong is it accelerates everything including consumption so it removes a lot of the barriers that used to uh, um, used to actually prevent people from consuming so much and it also reduces costs so it's, it's a sort of in a way a perfect accelerator um, Sotovsky is one of the economists I really admire he said that the more comfort goods you produce, um, you know, like he was thinking of TVs, he's writing in the 50s, the less time you have to enjoy creative activities in your life. He wrote a wonderful book called The Joyless Economy. It's a very, uh, it's, one, it's probably one of the founding books in the, you know, kind of um, economics of behavior. You know, so quite an important book. Um, so you probably recognize what this is. There's little glowing microplastics in that. So um, what I kind of emphasize in my book is that this wicked problem creates problems that are post-cautionary. That, that we, we now produce things without caution. We produce things, um, we externalize everything virtually, things that are not enjoyed for long, and so these become easily discounted and wasted. The coffee cup I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and in anticipation of being upgraded and replaced. And this includes services and experiences. So you have post-cautionary um, uh, commoditized goods and experiences that where the environment is externalized, where the impact on others is externalized. And the whole point is to get the transaction, to get more transactions so that you can clock up more money. And this is particularly bad in, you know, the fast-moving goods because the the issue really is that you need people going through the gate paying you know 10 cents each for profit you know so it's this is where business models become really really important and I'll, I'll try and uh, get on to that in a minute so in my book I try to confront the intelligent reader with the problem I actually avoid talking much about solutions because Everyone who studies this comes up with a solution, but the wicked problem stays there and stays, uh, the juggernaut remains. So um, what tends to happen is the, the advances in science and technology flow into industry and they, they're cherry-picked for industrial purposes and they become embodied in innovations that in effect increase consumption, waste, pollution and emissions. So we need a new understanding of this problem to find a solution that does not provoke kind of major conflicts and disasters. So I, I actually suggest a few things, but I'm really hesitant because I, the purpose of this book was really to, in a way, uh, force people to look at the, the actual scale of the problem. And I thought I'd just finish with a typical one, which is uh, the throwaway coffee cup. About 30 years ago, Starbucks began introducing this copying McDonald's and all the other fast food. Uh, you know, now there's around 500 billion estimated. And again, we don't have really accurate data. The waste informatics is a big problem. So the, the technical solution is really obvious. And there are people there who can do it. You know, you can separate the PE, plastic, from the paper. 
and uh, you can do this and then recycle them. But when you think about the scale, it's so ridiculous for a one-shot consumption act to cut down all those forests and to use all that water for this is totally ridiculous. Um, uh, you know, but it, in a way, it's typical of a lot of these fast-moving, single-use products. Um, it's convenient, it saves time, and it's profitable for somebody. So it must be good. Um, and uh, the ease of waste-making encourages more consumption. So it's now the second most common litter in many cities, and it's a real headache for the waste engineers. And I guess it summarizes a lot of what I want to say. There's, there's no cost or to the user, very little. So there's no sense of stewardship there. And uh, what happens when there's no cost or when cost is very low? Individuals will discount the value of what they have. So there's this sort of automatic kind of devaluing that goes on in the mind, you know, uh, like with this, these things. Then um, there's also uh, the externalization that is embedded in the business model. So if you compare IKEA, um, you know, where they don't want you walking around in their store spilling coffee on everything, so they, they, they won't supply you with throwaway cups and they'll talk up their environmental credit, you know, as well. But what they want is you to drink your coffee and to spend as much time as you want in the store. So the coffee is cheap, and uh, you use a ceramic cup. You 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 know press the button on the machine. You end up then um, uh, putting it back, and it gets washed up. It's very simple, very clear. Uh, Starbucks, on the other hand, may only have 20 tables, and so might be have seating for 50. But they really only start making a profit when they get 100 people through, say in an hour. So. For them, it becomes really important part of their business model and their expansion as a business. And nobody actually looked at this or checked this before they started. And so my view is that we have to start doing that. We have to start evaluating business models from an environmental point of view and checking for externalizations. I know this sounds like draconian and authoritarian, but how else are we going to do this you know, as a community? Yeah. Thanks. So, um, yeah, so post-caution. Um, I use this term because first do no harm, um, you know, uh, has been reversed now into first do harm and then call the lawyers. You know, um, uh, the time-saving issue is a big one. And Satovsky is absolutely right. His paradox that the more stuff you have, the less time you have to enjoy your life because your, your attention's being pulled in so many, so many directions. Um, some cost effects I mentioned, lack of big data on waste streams. We know a lot about general areas in waste, you know, but what you count, it, it's very good if you can actually count some of this stuff so that you can actually understand it. These figures on coffee cups, nobody has really accurate figures. Uh, it's all from blogs and from people trying to do estimating. You know, so I'm trying to kind of work on this with some colleagues. Um, so the, also the lack of regulatory response. How do you respond? This becomes a really interesting one for policymakers and regulators. And then the whole issue of individualization. I'm really against individualization. I hate people blaming individuals because if you travel the way I do, where there's a lot of poverty, they're amongst the worst litterers 
because they usually have no choice. You've got nowhere to put rubbish in places like Jakarta. Um, they're the ones who have to buy little packets of stuff to keep them going till the next meal, and they throw them on the ground. Yeah. So you're going to blame them, you know, with your nice takeaway, beautiful keep cup that costs thirty dollars or whatever. You know. So it's very important to get individualization into a kind of a a frame which is global. You know that blaming the individual doesn't work. We've been doing it for thirty years. It really doesn't work. So that's that's where I'd like to stop. Thank you.